Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Well, it's been a while since we recorded. It's been six weeks since we last recorded. Luckily, we work on a on a buffer. Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. You mean the buffer we used to have? Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. we will we will have again. We're recording this unusually three or four days before this is supposed to go out. Well, let's not let's not uh, you know. Not, not give all the give all our secrets away, well, Scott. No, but what this actually does mean is that for once our introduction is going to be topical. As we're topical, let's have some bang up to date news. Bang up to date. So what's bang up to date, Scott? Well, bang up to date is about a week ago. <laughs> uh, Call of Cthulhu Seventh Edition went to press. I thought you were going to say it was your birthday last week. Oh, we're coming to that. We're coming to that. <laughs> oh, so, uh, so, the, so the books are being printed. Will be with us sometime next year. Yeah. Early next year, though. Well, it sounds like the print run will be finished sometime around mid to late December. Mm-hmm. And then with shipping and so on, we, we with any luck, we'll start seeing stuff in January. Yeah, they've, they've been making an emphasis on the Kickstarter updates that every shipping would start as of the end of December. But by the yeah. time that actually hits, then distribution centres, goes through the the eternal horror of the postal system. It's probably going to be January, February time by the time it arrives. And I, I would say part of me pities the postman who's going to turn up with my package, but I'm looking forward to seeing him <laughs> weep. <laughs> he left a package out on, my, um, on the doorstep for me two days ago in the pouring rain, just thought, oh, I'll put it by the back door, nothing can get it there. No, nearly, the outer, pa- the outer side of the package soaked. If there hadn't been a buffer inside, books in there would have been completely trashed. Oh, blimey. So I'm looking forward to getting my revenge on the little fucking son of a... <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. And yes, Scott, didn't you have a birthday recently? We have a great old one in our midst. Yeah, I, I, I don't really remember, which is probably Matt's fault. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, had a, we had a fun party last week, and uh, Matt was on the cocktail bar with his big cocktail bar, <laughs> mixing, uh, well, cocktails. Yeah, and I just... I didn't realise how many shots you could get into a large martini glass. There's a reason why it's a large martini glass. Yeah. There's a reason I had to go to the supermarket and buy more gin. (laughs) Yeah, apparently you can get ten shots in a martini glass. And I didn't learn this until I was on my third one. I don't know how Matt does that, because the glass doesn't look that big. Uh, It's deceptive. It's It's non-Euclidean. Yeah, I was going to say, a little little chapter yogs off first and... In. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, too many of those and you will be talking to yourself. <laughs> I just, it was I worth you it. were Scott at one point, actually. <laughs> it, it was worth it to see the expression on his face when he went, how many of those have you put in there? <laughs> what have I drunk? There were a few expressions on Scott's face last, last week that I don't think I've ever seen before, I have to say. <laughs> that was just when Vicky was draped over him. Yeah. Well... <laughs> And a bit of upcoming news, uh, we're going to be doing a live episode. Yes, at Dragon Meet in London on the 5th of December. 
The microphone does not convey the look of shock and horror on my <laughs> face at this moment in time. But yes, yeah, so at six o'clock on uh, the Saturday for, of Dragon Meat, we will be getting together with our friends Baz and Gaz from What Would the Smart Party Do? Uh, and and recording an episode which may or may not be something to do with Is There Too Much Cthulhu in Gaming? But everybody welcome, come along, and uh, there'll be a showdown between us and the Smart Party. No uh, tomato flinging, please. <laughs> and if we can work out the technology, we'll even record it and release it as an episode. And if we can't, well, that's all the more reason to be there. But before we get into our main topic, should we move on to the word of the week? And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week's word of the week is fetid, an adjective having an offensive odour, stinking, or noisome. Noisome should have been a word of the week. I've not come across noisome so far. Yeah, it probably will be. In fact, I think noisome actually comes up in one of the examples we've got. But yeah, this is another very Lovecraftian word in that, I mean, it... Like a number of the other ones we've been through so far, it does sort of involve disgust, except instead of it being about the reaction of disgust, it's about something that provokes disgust. I've always taken it to be something that's gone off. It's kind of rotting and uh, and so on. That's kind yeah. of how I... I never read the definition of it before, but that's what I associated the word to... to that's what I understood by the word to mean, something that had gone off and smelled really bad. Yeah, or stale or like marsh gas or something like that. Mm. Or, yeah, something very kind of old and organic. Organic and, and yeah. sort of... Not on an unrelated term, I always keep thinking of feet. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're organic and they can go off, so, uh, yeah. Well, I, I was thinking more along the lines of uh, Lucy's reaction to the room when she comes in after we've been recording. Ah, the fetid air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. My but... wife comes in and throws the windows open when we've finished recording uh, for no good reason whatsoever. Th- th- there is usually a comment and a look of disgust with this as well. And a breath mask. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, isn't the, the, the expression for this called nose blind? <laughs> but this is a word that Lovecraft used a fair amount. I mean, not as much as some words we've looked at, but um, he used it 22 times in his main fiction, five in his revisions and collaboration. And also, interestingly, well, yeah, I mean, not unusually for Lovecraft, he tended to use the British spelling rather than the American one. Go, Lovecraft. <laughs> There's no U in it. No, but there is an O in his version, and yeah. the American spelling is uh, yeah, doesn't have the O in it's it. It's just wrong. Mm. Well, let's not be judging on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one thing I am judging is how he can make a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 line sentence. There is a quote on here that, that yeah, I saw earlier, and I thought, that's a bit long. And I said to Scott, you know, we used to just do single sentences, and he said, actually, that is just a single sentence. <laughs> Yo, it good is. Work, good work again from Mr. Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are so many semicolons in this. I thought I was bad for using semicolons, but no, no. that's good. I like using semicolons. He, he's just trying to in- impress Joyce. That's what he's doing. <laughs> well, let's take a look at some of the places where Lovecraft actually used the word fetid. From the festival. I saw this, and I saw something amorphously squatted far away from the light, piping noisomely on a flute. 
and as the thing piped, I thought I heard noxious, muffled flutterings in the fetid darkness where I could not see. And from At the Mountains of Madness... We were on the track ahead as the nightmare plastic column of fetid black iridescence oozed tightly onward through its 15-foot sinus, gathering unholy speed and driving before it a spiral, re-thickening cloud of the pallid abyss vapour. And finally, from the shunned house... A weak, filtered glow from the rain-harassed street lamps outside, and a feeble phosphorescence from the detestable fungi within, showed the dripping stone of the walls, from which all traces of whitewash had vanished. The dank, fetid, and mildew-tainted hard-earth floor, with its obscene fungi, the rotting remains of what had been stools, chairs, and tables, and other more shapeless furniture, the heavy planks and massive beams of the ground floor overhead, the decrepit plank door leading to bins and chambers beneath other parts of the house, the crumbling stone staircase with ruined wooden handrail, and the crude and cavernous fireplace of blackened brick, where rusted iron fragments reveal the past presence of hooks and irons, spit, crane, and a door to the Dutch oven. These things, and our austere cot and camp chairs, and the heavy and intricate destructive machinery we had brought. I love the reference to, and more shapeless furniture. <laughs> what does that even mean? Ikea furniture. And two uses of the word fungi in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Yes, our topic this episode is brought to us by listener Tor Nielsen, so, so thank you, Tor. And the topic is an exploration of the appeal of horror. Ooh. <laughs> so this is going to be a very subjective thing. I mean, we're going to talk about our own experiences and a few people we've talked to, what appeals or what doesn't appeal about horror, what horror is and why, you know, why it does or doesn't work for us. Yeah. What is horror? Well, let's kick off talking about what is horror. That's actually a much harder question to answer than it might sound. For me, it's a bit like deciding, if we're talking about films, deciding what films fit into the horror category and what don't. Yeah. It's, very, it's like if I'm going to organise my record collection, the only way I can really do it is A to Z. Because if you start trying to put music into categories and genres, then... You know, you just get in. You just start tying yourself in knots, and you want to put the same record into several categories, or or start another new category. And so, trying to put films into horror category, you know, where do you draw the line? So, what you're basically saying is that horror is the Frank Zappa of genre. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I thought most of your record collection could fit in seventies anyway, so therefore it is in one category. Well, I think <laughs> I have to I have to mention. Uh, the great Sandy Peterson here, who apparently in his house has many thousands of DVDs. He's got a massive DVD collection. But he's a big horror fan, as we all know. And he has a small section called... Do you know what it's called, Matt? Not horror. Yes, the not <laughs> horror section. So there's a category called not horror, and everything else goes in that. But we're no nearer, actually, to saying what horror is. 
Well, there was a quote that I came across uh, when I was doing a bit of research for this, which I think probably sums up my own thoughts on this very nicely. It comes from Douglas Winter, and uh, it, it goes like this. Horror is not a genre like the mystery or science fiction or the Western. It is not a kind of fiction meant to be confined to the ghetto of a special shelf in library or bookshelves. Horror is an emotion. My initial reaction to the question of what is horror is it's something you can identify if you had, like, say you've got a row of films, it's choose which one is the horror film here. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to see it and um, see it and recognise it than it is to define it. You the, know it when you see it. Yeah. The, the, there's, there's a lovely quote, and I can't remember who it's from. Uh, it was from one of the great Golden Age science fiction editors. So it was, um, might have been Hugo Gernsback, uh, might have been John W. Campbell. But it, <laughs> when asked to define what science fiction was, uh, he replied, science fiction is what I read when I feel like reading science fiction. <laughs> I, I guess it's a bit, you know, what what's comedy? I mean, some films have comedy in them. They, they have things that make you laugh. Are they? Would they fit into the comedy? I mean, some horror yeah. films have quite a bit of comedy in them without them being comedies. So yeah. I, I guess if you're talking about a Western, it's clear it's a Western because it's set, you know, typically in, in, uh, you in, know, in America, <laughs> in the West, and it's set in a, in a particular period. Yeah. Um, so it's it's got a setting, whereas a horror film can be any setting from the from the distant past to the distant future. It can be supernatural. It can not be supernatural. There's no particular trappings which define it. And and I would say the same with the comedy. I mean, you know, so it's it's more about an emotion than a setting. Well, I'd say it's more than that. I mean, it's interesting that you raised comedy. I'd say that more than just an emotion, it's an intent. That it, you know, when you set out to create a work of comedy, or whether you set out um, to create a, a work of horror, your your intent is to provoke that reaction. Um, but with comedy, your intent is to to, 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 is to make someone laughter. laughter. Yeah, yes, so. and and with horror, you know, your intent is to provoke horror. Yeah, I think that's sort of what perhaps differentiates. Films which which sort of might slip slightly into the horror genre. Think about this: something like Alien, for example. I mean, is Alien a horror film or not? I mean, it's very much a science fiction film. It's set on board a spaceship. It's about aliens. You know, the clues in the name. All the trappings of it are the trappings of a science fiction film. And yet, I say it is undoubtedly a horror film because you know its intent is to horrify. And that's what I was meaning by if you were trying to categorise all your DVDs and you decided you'd got a sci-fi section and a horror section, exactly where would you? put it yeah next yeah, I, I could see arguments for both sides I mean me personally I'd actually label it more as a sci-fi film because there there is more overt sci-fi influence than there is a horror influence I except I I disagree there in that you know all that all the science fiction stuff in there I'd say is actually window dressing for the intent to horrify whereas if you talk about aliens uh, Aliens is very much a science fiction film. It's not a horror film at all because it doesn't set out to horrify. It's it's an action movie. And if you talk about Event Horizon, that's much more of a horror movie. I would Absolutely. Say. Again, actually, Event Horizon was one I was going to categorise more as sci-fi as well, but that's really? just me. Right. Well, I think it uses a sci-fi. So you can use a sci-fi setting or a western setting or a historical setting, and it can be horror or even comedy as well. 
the brain dead's the one that I've been mulling over in my yeah. head. Yeah. <laughs> yes. See, so basically, you can't put these things in a box. Well, not in one box, can you? Mm-hmm. Not, not no. I, and also, yeah, I, I think trying to categorise these things just for the sake of it is a pretty pointless mm-hmm. exercise. Well, I think what we're trying to do there is trying to exclusively categorise yeah. it. And I think mm-hmm. what we have to accept is you can say it's it's a horror film and it's a science fiction film, or it's a horror film, and it's a whatever. It's a very complicated Venn diagram that, when it meets in yes. certain points, creates the colour out of space. <laughs> but but there are other films which you know perhaps evoke strong reactions, and are sometimes even you know those of horror, which may you know may not be quite so easy to categorise as horror films. I'm thinking about things like you know Threads or Come and See. They definitely provoke strong reactions. They are horrifying films, but whether or not. You know, they were created with an intent, you know, the intent to actually provoke horror and, you know, nothing else. So how do I know when something provokes horror? Again, that's an entirely subjective thing. I mean, that's, I guess that's partly why, you know, I I was talking about intent rather than reaction. If you, for example, have got, you know, a phobia about clowns, any film with a clown in it may be horrifying, even if it's designed to be a comedy. It for example. Well, yeah, except that is a horror film, but I'm thinking about, you know, perhaps some you know, kind of nice, innocuous children's film that just happens to have a clown in it. The fact that it's got a clown in it might, you know, horrify you personally, but it was not the intent of the filmmaker to make that horror film. That's why, you know, I, I was saying I think it's more important to talk about intent than reaction. So the aim is for the viewer to experience a sense of fear, a sense of revulsion, a sense of... It can be all of these things. I mean, it, it can be just the building and release of tension. Uh, it can be that that sense of unease. It can be the sense that, you know, your notion of reality is being undermined. Uh, it's all sorts of things. This leads us to, into, you know, some interesting territory. Where, how would you talk about, for example, the films of David Lynch? Because a lot of his films, you know, do all of these things, and you know, it's very obviously his intent to set out and unnerve you in these ways. Does that make his films horror films? I'd say they're more fantasy or just downright strange. While you've been saying about provoking different reactions, as the, the things going around my head is thinking of different examples of what provokes what type of reaction. Something like hostile would be to provoke to like a sickening reaction or disgust, yeah. whereas something like the haunting is like a creeping sense of dread and fright. So that again, it's one as you say, it's one thing that has multiple facets to it. But Lynch, I don't think using that kind of example framework that I'm trying to build up, I can't categorise him as horror. Except when you get to films like, you know, Inland Empire, for example, there are bits of that where, you know, undoubtedly his intent is to horrify the audience. Mm. Uh, admittedly, I haven't seen that. But it's not, that's not the whole of the film. It's, it's bits of it that are there to do that. Other bits of it, you know, there to make you laugh, perhaps. I'm not sure. If, I'm sure there are bits of Lynch that are funny. <laughs> um, yeah, or um, there's romance or, or whatever. Again, it's, it's not trying to fit into one genre. So I think for this discussion, it would probably best keeping away from the kind of grey areas and focus in on what we all agree to be horror. Where did it all begin? One thing I'd like to ask both of you is where did your love of horror begin? Or maybe where, what was your first experience of something you thought, wow, this is horror? My first experience was probably watching Doctor Who as a very young child. 
Yeah, it was the the John Pertwee ones that that really stuck with me. And I remember, I think it was Doctor Who and the Demons. That was the first one where I was sort of really focused on not only the monsters in there, but the you know the the, the sense of menace, the sense of growing horror. I, I I lived the cliche then. I actually did hide behind the furniture and watch it then because it scared me so much. I remember that that feeling of being frightened. I remember. You know, it being unpleasant at the time, but at the same time, I couldn't pull myself away from it. At that stage, it connected with something vital in me. And, you know, from there on, you know, I, I absolutely loved everything to do with horror. Matt, what would you say was the first thing that you experienced as, uh, that you would identify as horror? This is going to be really, really embarrassing. Oh, it can't. Yeah. I mean, it probably just, we're probably all just young kids, so it probably is like yeah. pretty lame stuff, maybe. Yeah. Going back way into the distant past, um, there was... I'm not sure if it's still there because I haven't been back to the place in easily 20-plus years, probably even more closer to 20, 25 years now. So, so quite recently. You know, but for you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dorwood for Targan. <laughs> Blackpool Pleasure Beach area. We've got relatives up in that, um, that part of the world. One of the things that we'd, um, we did on a couple of occasions was we went to Blackpool Tower. And there was an exhibition in there. I, just, I honestly don't know if it's still there now or whatever's happened to it. But I just remember this atrium that goes up. So the stairway goes up on the uh, right-hand side and then it continues going round the building until you get towards the top. Where I think it leads up towards what was a jungle gym at one point. On a balcony that heads up there, there's a side room where there was a series of exhibits. I can't remember what the um, what the hell is in the room. I just remember that the first thing that they had outside was this mummy that was um, in a box, with it very much like Boris Karloff style thing, in this pose, lit up from the bottom. And I just remember going around the corner and being scared and shitless of this thing. That it was it was terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And that it would be almost as if right, I've got to get past this thing, right, run around the corner quick and up the stairs, and then finally get to the um, the playground at the top. Oh, that's great. Yeah, but it was almost like stealing myself, going, I won't get past it, he won't get me, he won't get me, and then keep on going. No, oh. but I, I, I can definitely identify with that that feeling of, of not wanting to look at something like that. When I was a young child, my parents had, um, it was a brass rubbing taken from the tomb of a knight, and it was life-size, I mean, it was you know, five foot tall, and they had it framed, and it was hanging on the wall just opposite my bedroom door. And I remember if I had to get up in the middle of the night to go to the lavatory, I'd open it up. And there was just this shape hanging there on the wall looking down at me. Yeah, I was probably something like eight when this happened. And it was around the same time as I'd read E. Nesbitt's Man Size and Marble. Yeah, it's a horror story involving you know, a, a knight on a tomb coming to life. And, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Perfect timing. It, it was exactly that. And every night I'd come out and look at this and sort of think, I, I could just piss in the wastebasket. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have to go out. <laughs> How about you, Paul? You're not getting away from this. Mm -hmm. Well, I've already talked on a previous show about my early experiences with Carry On Screaming. Oh, yes. And, uh, when I was a little kid and my, um, my older siblings were watching it and I came down out of bed I think and uh, and you know sat on the sofa quietly in the background and watched some of it and it gave me nightmares for ages but no I, I also remember Doctor Who Scott and I didn't hide behind the sofa but when the music came on you know the announcer would say now you know BBC One it's time for Doctor Who I would leave the room and I couldn't go back in until the music had finished 
Oh, wow. So it was the music that totally freaked me out. And I can remember <laughs> right now hiding, you know, outside the sitting room with the door shut. And um, and I can remember them shouting, it's finished, it's finished, come in. And I'm like, <laughs> go back in and watch the show. And I was fine watching the show, or, you know, usually, <laughs> apart from the odd few bits. But, uh, yeah, it was the music that really freaked me out. And, and that's, been a, that's been a thing for me is, is odd sounds... In, in horror films, that, that, that's something that really plays on my mind. That's interesting. I, you know, obviously, again, this is a very subjective thing. For me, it was always visual. Um, but you know, as a child, when I was watching stuff that scared me, uh, you know, was that hiding behind the, the, the city? Or, um, or in some cases, you know, just kind of covering my face and peeking through my fingers. And I, I really used to do that as a kid. I still do. <laughs> yeah, I still, I've adopted that technique occasionally. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I don't think I've done it for forty years. Uh, some, some of us are less sens- desensitized than others. <laughs> no, I did. It, I did it rewatching Game of Thrones recently, actually, with the kids really? on the uh, on the duel bit with uh, oh, with the mountain yeah, yeah. and the other yeah. guy. Yeah, yes. I was just like I, don't, I can't do that again. Yeah, there, I've watched it once, not again. There, we won't give spoilers. For no, that, but though. there is a fantastically visceral scene. Yeah. But we've talked about our initial experiences of getting frightened. You know, every kid goes through something like that at some stage. Most, you know, either are repelled by it and don't go back to it or grow out of it. Why didn't we grow up? I don't think it's that we didn't grow up. I think it's just that we liked it. What is it about the horror that we that we like? Uh, what is it that we enjoy? And that's that. I've been wrestling with that since we kind of came up with this topic. I suppose the first thing that we need to pin down here, are we actually still scared by horror? Hell yeah. Yes. Now, this this is interesting because we had this sort of discussion a few weeks back. I've been scared by one horror film in my adult life. I do not watch horror films to get scared. So what are you watching for, Scott? If if they're not having the intended effect on you, which you've already said is the is the maker's intent, that's why it's horror. Yeah. If they're not having that effect on you, Clearly, there's something wrong with you, Scott. Exactly. No, really. Like, no, what, no, what, no. Why are you watching well, them? It's, why it's, you... it's interesting. I, I, I've found one other person who feels the way that I do about this, and we ended up having a long chat with him. That's Raphael Chandler. Uh, we, we had a long chat about this some time back. For both of us, you know, we, we don't watch horror films because we're scared. We watch them because they connect with something inside us. They basically give some kind of external voice or form to the internal way that our imaginations work. In my own case, when I let my imagination just run rampant and if I'm making shit up or whatever, it automatically goes dark. It goes to horrible places. At the same time, if I'm presented with that from an external source, it doesn't frighten me. It just connects. And I I can't explain it better than that. Matt, um, horror films scare me, whereas a horror novel won't. Um, it is quite a visual thing for me. Um, but the main thing that I go to when I, read an, um, when I read a novel or whether I watch a film is I'm looking for a story that will entertain me. And I generally weed out other genres because they, they're more predictable than horror. Horror is where you, break, you have a lot more chance to break the rules. Ooh. I, yeah, I, I'd, I'd actually debate that. I'd, I'd say that... You know, there is an awful lot of horror that is incredibly formulaic. Oh, yeah, that's... But then you're talking about, uh, pretend, at least in my mind, you'd be talking things like slasher films or just oh, general oh, gore fest, which they oh, don't particularly interest me. It's mainly towards the supernatural end of horror, which is go, the thing go, that interests me. Ghost stories tend to be the most formulaic of all. 
Actually, I'm on board with that. Matt here. One of the things that horror can do is it can break the rules in quite an irrational way. That if it were a um, detective show, they can, there can be a mystery, but it tends to be a logical explanation to it. Whereas part of the point of horror is it pulls that rug out from under you mm -hmm. and your expectations you know, of what is realistic no longer hold. And you can be left kind of... Yeah. I particularly like kind of trying to figure it out, kind of knowing that maybe I'm not going to be able to because there's that kind of cognitive dissonance of maybe, you know, those all those things can't really be true or whatever. But there's that wonderful moment in Fight Club uh, where there's a big revelation and just the voiceover and it is, ladies and gentlemen, we have just lost cabin pressure. <laughs> and, yeah, it, it is that moment. <laughs> it's that feeling of, yeah. oh, what the hell is going on now? Uh -huh. yeah. I, I, like, I like that moment where especially the rules you suddenly realise no longer apply. And even even with a moment, especially like Fight Club, when you suddenly realise that you and those rules never applied a lot, lot sooner, that's that's a hell of a. I like that kind of moment. But, but I mean, interestingly, you know, I don't think that's enough of an explanation, to, you know, for the drawer of horror, because there are other genres that do that just as well. Uh, but not for me. Right. That is that's where I find because again, as I said, this is very subjective. Other genres just don't do that. In some instances, they can be downright boring. Like, I will I gladly take a baseball bat and, um, to a TV if someone forces me to watch a rom-com, for example. I detest them. Musicals as well. Sit me down in front of a horror film, and sure, I might watch it if I haven't seen it for the first time through my fingers, because I really, really don't like being scared. But I will take the story in, and I will appreciate the story for what it's trying to tell you. And mm. then I'll go back and watch it on subsequent in, um, in subsequent runs, and because I know what's coming, I'm not as scared anymore, and I enjoy it all the more. Yeah, again, what you're talking about, though, with that, that whole feeling of the rug being pulled out from under you and the rules not applying and stuff like that. You know, I, I was thinking about this you know, over the last few days particularly because I, I've been listening to an audiobook, which is a collection of short stories by Jonathan Carroll. And Jonathan Carroll is my favourite writer. I, I've, I've mentioned him before a number of times. His stuff... It has those elements. It has, you know, the, the, that feeling that you are not in the real world anymore, that the rules, you know, don't apply, that the rug's going to get pulled out from under you. His stories aren't horror stories, though. I, you know, I can't tell you what they are. They're like all those elements, but he sets out to confuse you or show you wonder or, you know, show you strange and frightening beauty or whatever, but, but his intent is very rarely just to frighten you. I might well enjoy that, and it's not that I exclusively enjoy horror, but that's an aspect of horror that I enjoy. It's not that it's necessarily the rug pulling out from under you. Sometimes it's just like, oh, that's a really cool ending. Maybe I didn't see it coming, or it's just stylistically really good. But it's that emotional gut punch. Yeah. And yeah. I, think, I think, as you say, it can find its way into other genres, but you'll find it more in horror. You, you, you're certainly doing good horror, yeah. I mean, as I've said, an awful lot of horror is formulaic and, you know, an awful lot of it doesn't do that for me because, <laughs> you know, but, yeah, because I have, you know, read so many books and, and, you know, seen so many horror films. For something to feel novel to me, it has to be, you know, quite extraordinary. I think there's an aspect of horror films that it sort of demands a compelling story because... It, you know those other things you mentioned, like a rom-com or whatever. Viewers can get on board with the story or not, but with a horror film, it's usually, it's often life or death, or there's some really serious threat going on that takes you out of the everyday. It's not to do with the normal run-of-the-mill affairs. That was happening to you, nothing else would matter. And I kind of mm. like situations in life. 
where you've got something that you've got to focus on and you're just going to do it solidly yes, no the, matter what. Yeah, the world focuses down to a very small point. Yeah. It, it has an intensity. Yeah, um, I mean, I wouldn't so want to be yeah. in the position of the people in these horror films. But you get the same thing from thrillers. What differentiates those from horror films for you there? Uh, I think often thrillers can seem more mundane. I mean, good thrillers are very enjoyable, but I think they don't have the... I think it's a, it's a bit like talking about flavours of ice cream, ultimately. Yeah. You know, I like that one more than that one. Um, and, and I think it's the emotional reaction that it kicks off in you. Either you like it or you don't. You know, you, you've probably put your finger on something there that I couldn't articulate before, which is a, is a confluence of a couple of things. It's that feeling of the world getting very small and focused, that, you know, almost insurmountable problem or, you know, horrible situation that you've got to deal with. Combined with that that sense of wonder or the rules not applying, yeah, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. Horror is probably the only genre that mixes those two in precisely that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, for both of you, because you are frightened by the, you know, for example, the horror films you see, would you enjoy horror films more or less if you got those aspects that we just talked about without being frightened or as being frightened... A, a, a vital part of the experience. In, in some cases, I see it was almost as a barrier to entry mm. um, because there's some part of me that goes, oh, yeah, I quite like the sound of that, but there's just going to be a million jump scares and I can hate jump scares. Well, oh, I, I think jump scares are something else. We'll yeah, but, it's, but it, it's, again, yeah. it's the thing that scares me. Yeah. It's I know that this is going to be, ultimately, there are parts of this experience that I'm not going to like, but ultimately, I'm hoping I might like the story at the end of it. So I it's a bit of a gamble. Kind of, I actually kind of like jump scares, if they're done well. Yeah, but be weird. And also, the films that, that scare me tend to be, like, not great masterpieces things like paranormal activity and Blair Witch and, and things like that Scott's shaking his head and hanging his head in shame they tend to be the ones that I like myself get kind of invested and, and kind of immersed in um, and you know people sort of say oh they're really stupid those people in that film but I think well I'm pretty stupid I'd probably do exactly the same <laughs> stupid things like throwing the map into the creek in, in a fit of peak that's just the kind of thing that seems totally credible to me <laughs> the question is if they're not scary, would that put you off? Oh, no, if they had all those other off. things? No, it wouldn't, wouldn't put me off in the slightest. In fact, it would probably open them up more to me. Right, okay. Because I, th- I, th- I think I agree. I, th- I think if those things are done well, often that is what leads to them being scary. Yeah. I mean, certainly there are filmmakers you know, who I'm drawn to you know, and writers who I'm drawn to because they provide me the, with those experiences without being scary. You know, um, you know, thinking of people like David Lynch and Jodorowsky and uh, Louis, Louis Bunuel and so on. You know, I, I, I get a lot of those, those things from their films. But when they turn the dial of intensity of those aspects up, that can almost lead to a sense of horror. I'd like to discuss that a little about how the fear manifests because I was talking to a friend this afternoon about this and he doesn't like watching horror films but he doesn't like watching them because of the experience he has afterwards of having that whatever it is that that thing that frightened him in the film whether it be you know uh, gore or threat or or something horrible that's happened to someone replaying that in his mind mm-hmm. and almost can't stop from kind of almost indulging his own imagination in it. But he doesn't like that experience. He doesn't like the way it makes him feel. Mm. Now, I, I get that, and I'll watch a film, 
it's not like this happens with every film, but if it's a particularly scary film, I might be laid there in bed and, you know, I can feel myself kind of indulging myself and sort of thinking about it and then feel a shiver down the spine and I sort of think, no, no, just think about something else. <laughs> and then hearing the baba duk duk Exactly. <laughs> but I kind of enjoy that. And that's yeah. kind of what I meant by being a, kind of a, a flavour that, you know, either you like it or you don't. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I I don't get that again. I used to as a child. Nowadays, if I'm awake at three o'clock in the morning looking at the shadows in my room, I'm thinking about mortality or money or sickness or something like that. I, yes, I'm, I'm never thinking about imaginary horrors. The, real, the horrors of the real world are what fill me with genuine anxiety and fear. The stuff that comes out of horror films, that's light relief. To me, when he was describing his reaction and this sort of sense of running over it in his mind and not liking that, it kind of made me think, I tried to think of a parallel for the, to that. And the only things that I could think of were a couple of bad experiences I've had of like being having my house broken into. And you kind of keep thinking, you keep, you know, it's, it's a negative situation. That you, I keep run, kept running over it in my mind, you know, what if I'd come back earlier? You know, what if, if I could have done this? What if I could have done that? You know, what would have happened if, and, and it's something that I just kind of wanted to, you know, I just end up being angry and, and like just wanting to get rid of that feeling. Just going around in circles. I don't know if that's quite what he's feeling, but that's 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 the only parallel I could get. It's that kind of feeling that you kind of indulge your imagination in it, it runs riot, and you kind of wish it wouldn't, and you want it to you, stop. You can't switch off. And yeah. if, if you get that when you watch a horror film, you wouldn't want to watch a horror film. No. No, I agree. I can think of... Again, I can think of other th examples like traumatic memories and so on that mm. would be... Um, that again, when they get in there, they just don't want to go out. They just go round and round yeah. and you're like, yeah, just mm -hmm. stop, please. Mm -hmm. It's, it's mm. having that lack of control, I think, that's the scary part. So I was trying to sort of identify what I liked about horror by looking at somebody who didn't like horror and seeing what they didn't like about it. Mm. And I think it's just that thing of they don't like that thing, but I, I do. I, I don't think... Well, I think it's also the fact that... I think a lot of people who like horror films and are frightened by them, it's that build-up of, of tension or horror, whatever, and the release. It, it, you know, it, it, the release is the important part. I mean, you, you either you know something happens within the film, you can erupt into laughter after a jump scare or something like that, or you can, you know, at the end of it, there's a resolution that lets you go at the end. I'm totally if, not sure about this. But, but if yeah. your mind doesn't let you go at the end, then you don't get that sort of cathartic release out of it. I'm not sure about this whole cathartic thing. Certainly some films, I'm sure, you do get that build-up of tension and that release, and it's kind of like you've maybe, you know, it's allowed you to kind of explore that those feelings in a safe environment and then kind of overcome them and you've, you know, or whatever. I'm not, I don't think that's always the case, and no. I'm not sure that that's really the appeal to me. And certainly a lot of films don't set out to let you off the hook after that. And sometimes when they don't, that's the best, isn't it? Yeah, I, I was thinking the, the, the end of um, the film Darkness in particular, that certainly has no moment of release at the end of it. If anything, it's just a sudden creeping realisation of, oh shit, yeah. and that's not, a, that's not a moment of release at all. Especially if you were in a dark theatre watching that film at the time, that would be a very effective moment. What about the end of Martyrs? I mean, oh, yeah. I'm not going to say what the end is, but I mean, Jesus, how much darker could that be? Yeah, not much. <laughs> I, and, and those are my favourite films. Yeah, yes, I must admit, I, I don't like being left. There's no there. catharsis. <laughs> don't look for catharsis in Martyrs, is all I'm saying. Yeah. Horror in its many forms. 
So we've talked a lot about horror films. Obviously horror is presented in various other media. Which ones would you say are most effective for you? Um, I say effective and like are two different beasts there. Okay. Effective, I'm going to say it relies on the visual. But preferable, I prefer the written word. Because it, it takes out, as I mentioned before, that kind of barrier to entry, that feeling of being scared. I don't get scared when reading a horror novel. But I really enjoy getting my teeth into the story because almost my imagination, when it's picturing what the what the author is trying to tell me and visualising it in my mind's eye, again, I have more of a control over what I want it to look like. Can you pick one, Scott? I, I probably love horrors, the written word and film equally. The one that affects me the most is actually video games. I've talked about how I don't get scared by horror films and I certainly don't buy horror books. Going back to, you know, what you were saying before about people not enjoying horror because of the fact that it does genuinely scare them, I do not play horror video games for that reason because they are the one thing that, you know, the, the one medium of horror I've encountered that still, as an adult, scares me. If I if I try playing something like, you know, Amnesia or, or something like that, something with a first-person perspective, um, then... I get so terrified playing those games. I'm drawn into them, I'm immersed. Whereas I can watch a horror film and feel a degree of remove from the action that's going on. I can, uh, I can appreciate it in a detached, objective manner. I find that really weird. Yeah. So I don't. I don't. No, oh, I don't yeah. find it weird about the, the, the games. I, yeah. I totally understand that. But I find it weird that you watch films without immersing and and feeling like you're there. I, I think it's... that's totally what I do when I watch a, a horror film. I think If I don't possibly, feel that, I feel like, like it's not working. Well, I think the reason for this is possibly because I've been writing horror stories since I was a teenager. And so as a result, you know, the way I engage with horror is more uh, in a... Uh, more as a kind of creative... Yeah I, yeah, I look at it from the point of view of uh, the story rather than... You know, getting involved directly in the events. Mm -hmm. So almost in role-player game speak, you're in kind of in director or writer mode rather than kind exactly. of player yeah. mode. Yeah. The, the way I interpreted um, the description was that um, watching something on a screen is quite passive, whereas playing a video game is incredibly interactive. And yeah. it's that degree of interaction that that's the point. Again, maybe it ties in partly with the degree of losing control because you're not... Um, you, with a film, you're, you're, you're pretty much forced to sit there and you're fed what's on the screen. Whereas in the game aspect, you're making what's happening on the screen. You're directing it to go this way, that way, and suddenly finding X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it is definitely part of that. And and what I get from a video game, which I don't get from a film, is a sense of personal threat. Mm. I, I, I feel like I am myself endangered while playing it, which is the whole point of playing the game. And it's something that I've discovered <laughs> that I don't enjoy. No, right. I agree with you. I've, I've even I've watched some um, videos of the Slenderman games on YouTube, and when I've watched them again, it's fundamentally built on jump scare. Again, probably one of the reasons why I don't like it. But I can picture myself being the person playing the game and realizing that that is not for me. Yeah. Another thing that just occurred to me is there 
I, I was reading an essay by Neil Gaiman recently, and there was a line in there uh, which stuck with me, uh, which is, uh, you know, the profession of writing fiction leaves one poorly disposed to enjoying fiction. I think there may be an element of that with horror as well, that, I, you know, I'm drawn to it, but because I spend so much time kind of writing it or, you know, finding different ways of creating it, that it makes it very difficult for me mm. to immerse myself in it, because, yeah, yeah. It, it is always engaging that editorial part of my mind. But certainly, we have friends who we game with you know, fairly regularly and quite often run horror games for, and I can think of a handful of them. You know, uh, Ollie and Alina have both mentioned this to me in the past. They don't like watching horror films, but they will play any number of horror games with us. And, and so, yeah, again, I think that is perhaps the way we consume it or the way we approach horror through different forms. We'll move on to this a bit more in the next section, but I think it's quite possible for someone to, you know, for example, really like horror role-playing games or maybe even really like horror video games and, you know, just not like horror movies or whatever. Yeah, I uh, agree with that. We're sort of keyed up through our experiences and the way we're wired and so on to favour different senses or, you know, some of us have got more visual imaginations, uh, some of us are, you know, frightened by... Very mundane things, others are almost completely desensitized. So as a result, yeah, I, I, I think medium matters as much as content. Yeah, incredibly so. Like I said, I don't get scared by books, but I do get scared by films. They, they provoke very, very different reactions. But again, that's, gonna be, that's on a very personal level. But yeah, it's completely down to the medium. I won't get scared reading a horror book, or yeah, I won't get any emotional reaction. But if I lie down in the dark and listen to a horror story on an audiobook, I'll get slightly more of a reaction out of that. Yeah, I'd certainly say radio plays have been a source of good horror stories for me sometimes. Well, not, not so much recently, but I can remember back in the 80s there was a Radio 4 programme called the, the Man in Black. Each week it'd be a half-hour story. Yeah, some of those, I mean, again, you know, I talked about the, the effect of, uh, well, sound effects and, and sort of weird sounds and so on. Yeah, I mean, those those were used to great effect and, you know, and voices and... Maybe one of the things that works well there and perhaps, work, you know, means that horror films, for example, work better in the cinema and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about plays in a moment, mm -hmm. is the fact that if you're consuming it through a medium that totally dominates your senses or dominates your attention, you know, if you don't have any distractions, then that, I think, makes a huge difference as well. You know, I think watching horror films on, on television and watching them on the big screen are two completely different experiences. Yeah, because, again, it probably comes down to what uh, Paul was saying on focus. With the TV screen, especially if it's a poor, pokey, small little thing like mine, you're very much aware of the world around you. That and also the parrot screaming in my ear whenever I'm sat on the uh, sat on the sofa. Um, <laughs> so, so you've got your own inbuilt jump scares in your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except he's all like echo or peekaboo, but <laughs> not exactly not exactly jumpy. But no, it's, it's very much there's a a greater connection to the world around you. Whereas in you're in a cinema, you're surrounded in black. Um, with this big, the only source yeah. of light. But again, I, th I think that's true for any films. I don't think that's that's unique to horror films. Yeah, but it's the fact that you know, horror films are trying to provoke a particular emotional reaction out of you, and that you know, by having the darkness around you can. Uh, help. Yeah, yeah, certainly yeah. does. I mean, I mean, this is why when I'm watching horror films at home, you know, I will watch them with the lights out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but then I do that with any film. We mentioned the stage briefly there. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, th I think both you and I, Matt, are, are huge fans of the woman in black oh, on the stage. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I took uh, my wife, to go, uh, Tiff, to go see this a few months ago. Um, 
she's done a lot of horror work, so she came away thinking, oh yeah, not bad. Um, but I came away thinking it was one of the best experiences I'd had watching a stage show. I thought it was amazing, apart mm-hmm. from the cramped seats. Whereas we talked about um, films, either TV or on screen, ultimately you're watching a wall or a flat surface where this stuff is projected onto. On the stage, you can see the people three-dimensionally. You can see them on the stage. Or even in some cases, if you're in the stalls, you feel the bloody woman walk past you yeah. <laughs> as, she walk, as she goes up onto the stage. Oh, yeah. I mean, I not only had that experience, but there's a bit of the, the, the play where she basically, at least in the staging I saw, kind of stops in the middle of the stalls and then just screams. Yep. And mm-hmm. she did that while standing four feet behind me. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I, I've never jumped so high in my life. <laughs> it's just that, put in that aspect that it's, I say, it's a duality. You're still passive because you're still sat in the chair, but you're there. Well, I, I think one interesting thing about the theatre, which probably helps an awful lot with this, and this may tie in with what we're going to talk about with role-playing games in a moment, is the fact that... It's sort of a halfway house. Unlike a film, it doesn't present an entire constructed world in front of you. The stage, by the nature of it, you know, is limited in what it can provide in terms of set, in terms of props and so on. And so as a result, you your, your mind has to fill in the rest. And I think the degree of engagement that's involved there means that you're drawn more into the emotions that it provokes. Horror in role-playing games. Well, as we often say when we're talking about films or, or books or whatever, this is supposed to be a gaming podcast. So let's bring this all back round to what is our, our core and talk about how all of the things we've discussed so far influence what the appeal of horror is in a role-playing game. Hmm. Again, I think it's partly that that aspect of having, that we've repeatedly said, of having the rug pulled out from under you, that degree of surprise, that if you're involved with, like, Cthulhu, it's an investigative game, that investigation is, or can be if it's its core, it's you're putting puzzle A, well, pieces of a puzzle together with a quite logical, this fits here, this fits here, and this fits here. But if you have a puzzle that suddenly doesn't make any sense, that can be... Some people might find it infuriating. It's like, why won't this come together, damn it? But for me, that's part of the enjoyment of it, is having that, um, trying to make sense of the unsensible. I I guess this is where I I show my true colours as a heretic when it comes to Call of Cthulhu. I don't actually like investigative games. At the best, I use that as a pretext and try to use it as a way of driving towards the horror. But the investigation part of it leaves me cold. Um, yeah, I'm much keener on the horror than the investigation. The whole investigation kind of, I don't know, Sherlock Holmes thing, I can do without that, really. Um, I mean, it can be a vehicle to kind of get the story going, but I'd far rather have a, a situation and you know, yeah. and people involved in it and things happening. I, I'm not really interested in that whole investigation thing. Well, I, I mean, a lot of what I get out of modern Call of Cthulhu was shaped by playing a number of games with you at Conventions Ball. Um, the, well, that's uh, the, the, but, <laughs> but indeed. But you, um, I mean, I, I've seen other people do this as well, but you're particularly good at doing this, which is you know, the ability to plunge a group of players into 
not just in a media res situation, but in you know, you, you're starting off suddenly with that what the fuck feeling and not quite sure what's real or what's going on, and sort of you know that, that feeling of suddenly kind of groping around in the dark trying to work out you know where you are and what's safe and what's real and yeah, I mean that's a attempt sort of model of kind of horror films that I like, mm. I guess, and those kind of stories where you're in a particularly for a one-off game like that where it's which I think is what Call of Cthulhu works by far the best for yeah. is you know it's it, a horror story works really well when you it starts off and you're in some kind of situation and you know you've got to try and bring it to some kind of resolution yeah yes and you don't necessarily know what's going on it's that feeling of of just starting out not feeling safe and just trying to learn what the rules are but i think it's such a powerful thing that role playing games can do i think better than anything else mm. What was the appeal of gaming in a horror thing? Why don't we just play D and D? Or I mean, D and D can have horror elements, but but why do we why do we end up with Call of Cthulhu and Unknown Armies and Cult and things like those those kind of um, horror based games? Well, the, I mean, the the simple answer for me is going right back to what I said at the beginning of this, which is that's the way my imagination works. Mm. You know, it's exactly the same reason as I'm drawn to horror films and everything else. You know, this is what I've steeped myself in since I was a child. It's, you know, if I put pen to paper, it's what comes out. Yeah, I, I, I could... It's not even a question of choosing, you know, to play horror games or run horror games. It's more a question of I can't help it. You know, if I'm going to run a game, it is going to go dark. It's, That's your you style. Know, yeah. yeah. God help us if you ever run Toon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have. Oh, boy. <laughs> and it's because of the kind of stories you can run that you favour those kind of games, Matt? Yeah, I, I like, again, almost bordering on fantasy in a sense that it is a fantastical, but as you say, uh, Scott says, a very dark world. That I don't like D and D because I know when I play D and D, I'm going to sit at a table and I'm going to go through one bloody combat after another. <laughs> I'm going to go from one dungeon, loot, kill the monster, loot the treasure, and it's very formulaic. And it's you like same. Lamentations of the Flying Princess because it's got those aspects of we don't know what the hell's going to come up. It's very much at the discretion of the keeper. That it's their twisted mind, really their really sick, deep and twisted mind that we're going into. <laughs> and I asked Ollie about this, about how um, he doesn't uh, like horror films, but he does like Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Yeah, how do you reconcile that? And he said he doesn't like playing horror games when somebody else is running them, but he likes running them himself because he feels kind of like he's he's in control of mm. you know a lot more of it. So he, he doesn't sort of stray into areas that he doesn't like, which I guess you mm -hmm. know is an explanation. But that's also interesting, and it kind of moves on to you know the next thing I wanted to ask, which is you know obviously you know this is a thing that's very difficult for me to answer because of the things I've said earlier. But do any of us ever actually get scared playing uh, horror role playing games? I, I remember when you first ran Cult for me. In fact, the first time we met, that that was a pretty intense session. Um, partly down to the fact that you had um, it was a dark room, lit, only lit by candles. You had music playing, and you went out of the way to create a creepy atmosphere. And even just the visuals of how certain things are described. Again, it that was that was pretty unnerving in some moments. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you can you can have it in games. I've definitely had that in games. Sometimes, as, as GM, of trying to convey that sense of fear to players, I've actually kind of ended up kind of evoking scenes that have frightened me or, or, or you know, given me a shiver down the spine, and I've felt a sense of fear. And I kind of think that if I'm feeling that, hopefully I can kind of convey <laughs> that to the player. 
And I've certainly had players that have been freaked out. Like I remember one guy who I used to live in a house with a big weeping willow tree outside. And um, they used to freak them out because they'd have to walk through this these draping <laughs> uh, willow branches as they walked out to the car. But on his way home, he had to pull over in a service station and check the boot to see if there was anything in there because he was so freaked <laughs> out. Nice. <laughs> oh, lovely. I haven't, I haven't had that degree of visceral response, but I do remember a couple of players in one... It's one particular scenario which I've run at conventions a few, in a few places where I always seem to find there's an arachnophobe in the group and it's all about Atlachna Cha. So you have one particular moment that seems to happen uh, when certain groups go through it is they get stuck in a big web and that they're helpless and immobile and basically get pumped full of eggs. And I've seen people crawl up in their chairs in the, or in the sofa if I've run it in a logic conception or Indicon <laughs> and just go, just move on to someone else, okay, just move on. <laughs> and yeah, when, when you hit a phobia, that can yeah, really, really hit home. And it is actually possible, I've found, to get jump scares in role-playing games as well. A couple of times just through sudden shifts of voice or, you know, sudden physical movements or whatever, When, because I tend to be quite softly spoken and you know, by nature. Sometimes I would... Did someone tell you that, Scott? <laughs> but, but, but sometimes in games I'll just shift gear and so on, and, and I have made people just jump out of their skins sometimes. Which... Yeah, I think, you know, just the, the basic thing of slamming your hand down on a table yeah. to sort of, you know, for a gunshot or something like that, it just, it's just that kind of, well, it's just using everything you've got, isn't it, to, yeah. um, you know, to, to bring effects into the game. Well, I mean, the, the biggest jump I ever got out of a player in a game was actually in a crowded gaming hall and so on. But again, I was speaking very, very softly, describing a creepy scene and as he was looking into a window, uh, into a dark window and just you know, sort of built up the atmosphere and just sort of said, oh, and suddenly there's a face. And at the same time, I just moved forward until I was almost nose to nose with him. <laughs> and, you know, Paul, I just jumped and jumped out of his seat. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Do you think scaring people at the table is an important part of horror role-playing game? Is that part of the appeal of it? Or do we play horror role-playing games for a different reason? The sadistic part of me when I'm saying I'm running a game is I want to scare someone. Yeah. Um, I want to provoke a reaction of some kind. And if, if they get scared, hey, I'll win. Um, but it's not a prerequisite. I wouldn't go out of my way to say I have to get it in every game. If it happens, it's a bonus. Yeah. But it's more about the story I'm telling, and that's the, that's the core of it to me. Yeah, I mean, with me, I think it's... I, I want to try to draw people into something. I want to undermine their sense of reality for that three hours or whatever. I want to sort of make them feel off balance and off kilter. Yeah, I want to. Uh, yeah, I want them for that few hours to not feel safe, but not feel safe in a safe way. If that makes any sense. So almost a sadist. Except, you know, I want them to enjoy it, but at the same time, yeah, I want them to enjoy you know, being unnerved and unbalanced. Yeah, I think if I was making a horror film, I'd want to, you know, we've said the objective of horror is to, to horrify. So I think when I'm doing a game, yeah, I think there's an element of trying to convey that that sense of fear and horror. Um, but it's more about perhaps trying to get a sense, either a sense of wonder or a, a kind of a plot twist or some some kind of surprise in there. That wow moment. Yeah, it's more about that than... And, and that, that kind of leans on the kind of horror tropes, perhaps. Um, but, the, but the horror tropes are a, mean to, a means to producing that end. Yeah. And I think, I think particularly running games at 
um, like the role playing games club or a convention, those kind of things. I think it's very difficult to get that atmosphere yeah. of fear and horror. I think, you know, I think a strong element, and this is kind of again, this is kind of going off topic, but I think a, a strong element of evoking that is is playing in a in a dimly lit quiet room and, and being able to kind of get the, the, the feeling um, between you. I've, I've had that comment brought up before actually about when run games. Um, one of my good friends, uh, Richard Gravestock from down in Rickmansworth, said one of the best games that I'd run for him was actually in a room completely by chance at Concrete Cow, where down in the basement we've got a very cramped kitchen mm. off, the, off the side. I ran a game that was set during a hurricane down there, so it felt very much like a storm shelter. Everyone crammed in together, sort of everyone elbow to elbow, <coughs> squashed in at this table without any room to move around them. And he said even just the atmosphere of being in that one room, even though it was very serendipitous, was a perfect combination for the game that was run. So yeah, atmosphere around you, very, very big part. Yeah. Whereas if you're running it in a big light room, um, you know, with bowls of crisps on the table and mm -hmm. people drinking Coke and, uh, you know, there's another table next to you shouting and laughing, mm -hmm. you're not really going to... You've got you, it really... The odds yeah. are really stacked against you of actually invoking fear in somebody. That's why I try not to run games in convention halls these days, um, mm -hmm. like IndieCon or Conception. If I've got somewhere where I can go off into a private room or a lodge, I will take it every time. Mm -hmm. Same here, yeah. And it also saves my voice from having to be shouting at someone at the other end of the table to be heard. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. As many of you will know, our podcast is funded by a Patreon campaign and hooray, we have some new backers. So we'd Yay. like to say a big thank you. Woohoo! Our first donation comes from our friends at the Smart Party. That's that's Baz and Gaz. If you're not familiar with them, they do a podcast called What Would the Smart Party Do? Uh, where they discuss... Oh, you know those... Well, maybe you don't if you don't go to conventions, but you know those long, drunken conversations you have late into the evening where you basically sort out all of the problems of the world, particularly relating to role-playing? Well... It's basically that as a podcast. And so Baz and Gaz sort out all your problems. Pretty much, on a by proxy, yes. Sounds good. So that's $1 well spent for the plug there, fellas. <laughs> Thanks, Baz and Gaz. Indeed, thank you very much, guys. And a thank you and a warm toast goes out to Victor Garrison. Thank you very much, Victor. Thank you, Victor. Yes, thank you, Victor, and a belated happy birthday to you. And likewise to Gerald Carla. Thanks very much, Gerald. Yes, thank you, Gerald. Thank you very much. And finally, thank you very much to Trevor Hurst. Cheers, Trevor. Hey, thank you. Cheers, Trevor. And this is a message going out to all our backers on Patreon. We're going to be holding the first of our group chats on Sunday, the 29th of this month, the 29th of November, at 4pm GMT. So that corresponds to 11am EST, 8am PST or 5pm CET and if you're in another time zone work it out yourself. <laughs> so we'd like to welcome backers to join us for you know it will go on for an hour or so. Our plan is to talk about some of the, um, the episodes we've had out recently and to discuss also some of the upcoming episodes and get some input from you guys on what your thoughts are and uh, anything you want to say. Feel free to drop in and have a chat. Hopefully yeah. not mock me too mercilessly for my atrocious internet connection. Oh, we'll do that. Yeah. 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 
But yes, yeah, generally we'll get together for an hour and talk shit. Have we got to the bottom of the appeal of horror? Well, yes and no. I think we've discussed a lot of different aspects of it. You know, as I said at the outset, this is going to be a very subjective talk, and it was a very mm -hmm. subjective talk. Ultimately, that's all we can do. We're not academics, we haven't made a proper study of this. But, yeah, I'd like to think that, you know, through our experiences with being long-time horror fans and writers and so on, that we've, we, we've at least got our personal takes on it. And I th think we managed to share those. Yeah, and the fact we have a slightly different take in each instance as well, I think that helps, because it, it definitely helps to fuel discussion. So, as a conclusion, what's the appeal of horror? The appeal of horror is different for everyone. For me personally... It's not so much an appeal, it's a sickness. I mean, I, I can't help it. It's, it's, you know, my mind is drawn towards it like, you know, a magnet. It could have been anything. For me, it's horror. It's, it's the way my mind works. Matt? Uh, for me, it's, as mentioned, the subversion of rules and tropes of other genres where you don't know quite what you're going to get. That it's, it's a mystery that, honestly, you have no control over what's going to happen. And I like being surprised in that fashion. Not scared, but surprised. I think for me it's that kind of emotional reaction to that horror thing that you get. I just figure that I must like that emotional reaction. I guess other people get it from romantic comedies. You know, they like whatever emotional reaction that stirs in them. And they're doesn't wrong. Do it, doesn't do it for me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, each, back each to, the to their own. You see, I actually quite like rom-coms. Yeah. And, so what was I, it about being wrong and broken or something? <laughs> I like musicals too, Matt. The next, God. the next show upcoming is going to be Scott talking about romantic comedies, um, and there lies the real horror. He submitted me and tortured me with Phantom of Paradise. I remember that. Oh, god awful film. <sighs> Scott's guilty of for subjecting us to a lot of bad films, Matt, isn't he? No, but if some films like Threads or Come and See, he's he's enlightened me, and then he put yeah. me through that. He, with one hand he giveth, with the other he taketh away. Uh, as my father would have said, all your tastes in your mouth. And one day I'll understand that expression. <laughs> right. Well, until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous tomes?